Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to suspense, crime, and horror stories from the golden age of radio. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. We love mysterious old-time radio stories, but do they stand the test of time? That's what we're here to find out. Today, we return to the listener library for a suggestion from our mysterious listener, James. James writes, Just found your podcast, and I like your thoughtful, funny commentary on shows, even ones I've heard several times before. I would enjoy hearing your thoughts on one of my favorite episodes of Suspense, 100 in the Dark by Owen M. Johnson from September 30th, 1942. The structure and content is quite different from what we usually associate with the show. Suspense aired on CBS Radio from 1942 to 1962, producing 947 episodes in total, most of which still exist today. Hailed as radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense specialized in edge-of-your-seat thrillers, some written especially for radio, others adapted from contemporary and classic literature. CBS Radio aired the pilot for Suspense on July 22, 1940, as part of a new program called Forecast. The concept was simple. Each week, Forecast presented a potential new series to the listening public. If the response is favorable, the network felt confident to proceed with the series. If not, they wrote it off as a relatively inexpensive way to fill its summertime slot. The Lodger was based on the novel of the same name by Marie Bellick Lowndes and ostensibly directed by Alfred Hitchcock, who had previously adapted the story for his first feature film, The Lodger, A Story of the London Fog. The production was successful enough with listeners to eventually merit a series. Two years later, in June of 1942, CBS tested suspense as a summer series of 13 episodes, beginning with an adaptation of the John Dixon Carr novel, The Burning Court. The 13th and final episode of the debut season was 100 in the Dark. As James mentions in his email, 100 in the Dark is adapted from the short story by Owen Johnson, first published in 1913 as part of the collection Murder by Any Degree. It represents one of Johnson's rare forays into genre fiction. Today, he is best remembered for a series of comical coming-of-age novels set inside a fictionalized version of the Lawrenceville Prep School in New Jersey. The third novel in the series, The Varmint, introduced a character named Dink Stover, who Owen would later feature in his 1912 novel, Stover at Yale. The novel depicted the trials and tribulations of undergraduate life at turn-of-the-century Yale. F. Scott Fitzgerald was a fan of the novel, calling it the textbook for his generation. Suspense produced 100 in the Dark a second time on November 20th, 1947, with a star-studded cast including Howard Duff, Joseph Kearns, and Jeanette Nolan. However, James requested the 1942 production, citing Bernard Herrmann's atmospheric score and a stronger sense of pace. And now let's listen to Suspense's original production of 100 in the Dark, starring Eric Dressler, Alice Frost, and Ted Osborne. First broadcast, September 30th, 1942. It's late at night and a chill has set in. You're alone and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker, listen to the music, and listen to the voices. 
the Columbia Network takes pleasure in bringing you Suspense. Suspense. Columbia's play theater of outstanding thrillers. Produced and directed by William Spear and scored by Bernard Herrmann. The notable melodramas from fiction and stage and screen, from the world's great literature of entertaining excitement, presented each week to bring you to the edge of your chair, to keep you in suspense. Tonight's story, by America's distinguished author-playwright Owen Johnson, gathers its suspense in a very gentle way. It doesn't have a spectacular finish, garnished with revolver shots. There are no graveyard watches. There's not so much as a single lifeless body, identified or unidentified. It's a tale told in a club room, the Artists and Writers Club in New York. A tale of high-class robbery and suspicion and of how some ladies and gentlemen nervously counted 100 in the dark. Ah, that was a fine meal. Me for the club any time. Yeah, here, we can all sit here, Freddy. Yes, if you'll just draw up that chair for Mr. Peters. Oh, yeah, thank you. Peters. Thank you. Uh, do you all know Peters? Uh, this is Mr. Steingall. Uh, how do you do? I know you. Uh, Mr. Gollier? Oh, I, I believe we've met. Oh, yes. yes. How are you? Oh, you oh, know each other. Yes, yes. And the one who drew up the chair, Mr. Rankin. How do you do? Thanks well, I guess, I, I guess we're all acquainted now. Um, to get back to our table discussion, Quinny. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, how about a drink? Who'll join me? Oh, yeah, pleasure. Fine, fine. Uh, John. Well, now, Steingall, as I said... There are only half a dozen stories in the world. What is more to the point? There's every reason yes, to... Yes, sir. What? Oh. Uh, five uh, with soda, John. Yes, sir. Now, now, where was I? Oh, yes. What is more to the point, gentlemen, is the small number of human relations that are so simple and yet so fundamental that they can be eternally played upon, redressed and reinterpreted in every language in every age, and yet remain inexhaustible in the possibility of variation. Well, that's true, of course. It's very possible. Take the eternal triangle. Two men and a woman, or two women and a man. Its variations extend to thousands. That right, Rankin? Well, in a way. Ah, here we are. Uh, Set them down right there, John. Very well, sir. Uh, A little soda. Uh, here you are. Uh, thank you. And you? Uh, 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 soda, Peter? Yes, please. Uh, another one. Here you are. Thanks. And here's yours. Thank you. And now, a little soda in mine. Uh, well, here's to you all. Cheers. Cheers, cheers. Uh, I'm afraid we can't see eye to eye, Quinny. I believe there are situations, original situations, that are independent of your human emotions, that exist just because they are situations, accidental and nothing else. As for instance? 
Well, I'll just cite an ordinary one that happens to come to my mind. In a group of five men, well, such as we are here, a theft takes place. One man is the thief. Now, which one? Now, I'd like to know what emotion that interprets. And yet it certainly is an original theme at the bottom of the whole literature. It's not the same thing at all. Ah, detective stories. I could answer that the situation you give can be traced back to the commonest of human emotions. Curiosity. I think Quinny uh, has you there, Rankin. Hmm. What is the peculiar fascination that the detective problem exercises over the human mind? You will say, curiosity. Hmm, yes and no. Admit at once that the whole art of a detective story consists in the statement of the problem. Anyone can do it. I can do it. Steingall can do it. Uh, Rankin, I believe even you can do it. <laughs> the solution doesn't count. It is usually banal. It should be prohibited. What interest us is? Can we guess it? There you have it. The problem, the detective story. Now, why the fascination? I'll tell you. It appeals to our curiosity. Yes. But deeper, to a sort of intellectual vanity... Five men present. The theft takes place. Who's the thief? Who will guess it first? Whose brains will show its superior cleverness? You see? That's all. That's all there is to it. Out of all of which, the interesting thing is that Rankin has supplied the reason why the supply of detective fiction is inexhaustible. It does all come down to the simplest terms. Five possibilities, one answer. Well, the reason is that the situation does constantly occur. It's a situation that any of us might get into any time. Yes, I know of an incident of that kind that happened to a friend of mine last month. Of course, of course, gentlemen, you are glorifying commonplaces. Every crime, I tell you, expresses itself in the terms of the picture puzzle that you feed to your six-year-old. It's only the variation that is interesting. Take the well-known instance of the visitor at a club and the rare coin, for example. You all know that story. You've heard uh, it, haven't you? I don't think I have. Sure. Why, it's, it's very well-known. Oh, go ahead, Quinny. Tell it. A distinguished visitor is brought into a club. A dozen men, say, present at dinner, long table. Conversation finally veers around to curiosities and relics. One of the members present then takes from his pocket what he announces as one of the rarest coins in existence. Passes it around the table. Coin travels back and forth, everyone examining it. And the conversation goes to another topic. All at once, the owner calls for his coin. It is nowhere to be found. Everyone looks at everyone else. First, they suspect a joke. Then it becomes serious. The coin is immensely valuable. Who has taken it? The owner is a gentleman. Does the gentlemanly, idiotic thing, of course. Laughs as he knows someone is playing a practical joke on him and that the coin will be returned tomorrow. The others refuse to leave the situation so. One man proposes that they all submit to a search. Everyone gives his assent until it comes to the stranger. He refuses, curtly, roughly, without giving any reason. Uncomfortable silence. The man is a guest. No one knows him particularly well, but still he is a guest. One member tries to make him understand that no offense is offered. That the suggestion was simply to clear the atmosphere. The stranger becomes very firm, very proud, and says, I refuse to allow my person to be searched, and I refuse to give the reason for my action. Another silence. The visitor evidently has the coin, but he is their guest, and etiquette protects him. <laughs> nice situation, eh? Well, what's the well. answer? The table is cleared. A waiter removes a dish of fruit, and there, under the ledge of the plate, where it's been pushed, is the coin. 
Banal explanation, eh? Of course. Solutions always should be. At once, everyone apologizes to him. Whereupon the visitor rises and says, Now I can give you the reason for my refusal to be searched. There are only two known specimens of that coin in existence. And the second happens to be here in my vest pocket. That's rather obvious. <laughs> of course, the story is well invented. But the turn to it is very nice. Very nice, indeed. Well, I don't know. Ending is very unsatisfactory. The visitor should have hit on him not another coin, but uh, something absolutely different. Something uh, destructive, say, of a, a woman's reputation and a... Great tragedy should have been threatened by the casual misplacing of the coin. Well, I've heard the same story told in a dozen different ways. Oh, it's happened a hundred times. It must continually happen. I know of one extraordinary instance, in fact, the most extraordinary instance of this sort I've ever heard. Peters, you rascal. I see you've been quietly letting us set the stage for you. Well, it's <laughs> not a story that will please everyone. Why not? Because you will want to know what no one can ever know. It has no conclusion, then? Yes and no. As far as it concerns a woman, quite the most remarkable woman I've ever met, the story is complete. Uh, do I know the woman? Possibly. Probably, I should say. Uh -huh. As a matter of fact, this should be particularly interesting to you because <clears throat> I believe that most of you are acquainted with the people involved. Uh, the names, of course, are disguised. I think... Uh, yes, I have. Just time before I catch my train to tell it to you. <laughs> Mrs. Well, Mrs. Rita Kildare inhabited a charming bachelor girl studio. Very elegant. With a duplex pattern and one of the buildings just off Central Park West. She knew very nearly everyone in that indescribable society in New York that's drawn from all levels and that imposes but one condition for membership to be amusing. In this mingled society, her invitations were eagerly sought. Her dinners were spontaneous. And the discussions, though gay and usually daring, were invariably under the control of wit and good taste. On the Sunday night of this adventure, she had, according to our custom, sent away her Filipino butler and invited to an informal chafing dish supper seven of her more unusual friends. At seven o'clock, having finished dressing, she put in order her bedroom, which formed a sort of free passage between the studio and a small dining room, to the kitchen beyond. Then, going into the studio, she struck a match and was about to light the candlesticks which illuminated the room when the bell rang. And a Mr. Flanders, a broker, compact, nervously alive, well-groomed, was waiting as she opened the door. Well, you're early. On the contrary, you are late. <laughs> well, in any case, hello, and come inside. Here, let me take your things. Thank you. Well, I'm the first, I suppose. Of course. And since you are, you can be a good boy and help me with the candles. Delighted. Who's to be here tonight? The Enos Jacksons. I thought they were separated. Not yet. How interesting. Only you, dear lady, would dream of serving us a couple on the verge. It is interesting, isn't it? Assuredly. Uh, where did you know Jackson? Through the Warings. Jackson's a rather doubtful person, isn't he? Uh, well, let's call him a very sharp lawyer. They tell me, though, he's been gambling pretty much. In deep. How about yourself? Oh, me? I'm a bachelor. If I lose my shirt, it makes no difference. Is that possible? Probably even. 
Who else is coming? Oh, uh, Maud Lilly. You know her? No, I don't think so. You met her here some time ago, a journalist. Oh, yes, yes, of course. I'd forgotten. Mr. Harris, the clubman, is coming, and the Stanley Cheevers. Stanley Cheevers? Are we going to gamble? Don't tell me you object. <laughs> Certainly not. Only the Cheevers. <laughs> they play quite a game. Yes, well united. <laughs> they have an unusual streak of good luck. <laughs> oh, by the way, it's uh, Jackson, isn't it, who is so attractive to Mrs. Cheever? Quite right. What a charming party. Hey, where does Maud Lilly come in? Don't joke. She's in a desperate way. And young Harris? Oh, he's to make the salad and cream the chicken. Ah, see the whole party. I, of course, am to add the element of respectability. Of what? Don't play baby with me, my dear Flanders. I apologize. That's better. No one, of course, knows who else is coming. No one, of course. The Stanley Cheevers enter. A short, fat man with a vacant, fat face and slow-moving eye. And his wife, voluble, nervous, overdressed, and pretty. Mr... Yes, Mr. Harris came in with Maud Lilly. A woman, straight, dark, Indian, great masses of somber hair, held in a little too loosely for neatness, with thick, quick lips and eyes that rolled away from the person who was talking to her. The Enos Jacksons were late, and still agitated as they entered. His forehead had not quite banished the scowl, nor her eyes the scorn. He was of the type that never lost his temper, but caused others to lose theirs. Mrs. Jackson seemed fastened to her husband by an invisible leash. You looked at her curiously and wondered what such a nature would do in a crisis with a lurking sense of a woman who carried with her her own impending tragedy. As soon as the company had been completed and the incongruity of the selection had been perceived, a smile of malicious anticipation ran the rounds, which the hostess cut short by saying... Well, well, now that everyone's here, this is the order for the night. You can quarrel all you want, you can whisper all the gossip you can think of about one another, but everyone is to be amusing. Also, everyone is to help with dinner. And nothing formal, nothing serious. We may all be bankrupt, divorced, or dead tomorrow, but tonight we'll be gay. That's the invariable rule of the house. <laughs> bedroom. Oh, thank you, dear. Uh, now for my apron. Oh, there it is. Uh, tie me up in the back, will you please, Maud? Of course. There you are. Fine, thanks. Now just let me get my rings off and I'll be all ready to go to work. Oh, this is such a lovely apartment, Mrs. Kildare. Thanks. Soap and water always seem to do it. Ah, there. Your rings are so beautiful. They are nice, aren't they? But there's only one that's very valuable. The sapphire. Oh, it's beautiful. Let me see. Oh, it must be very valuable. It 
cost 10000 six years ago. It's been my talisman ever since. For the moment, however, I'm a cook. You're not going to leave the rings there. Why, of course. Now, I'm the cook. Uh, Maud Lily, you're the scullery maid. Harris is the chef, and we're all under his orders. Mrs. Cheever, mm. did you ever peel onions? Oh, good heavens, no. <laughs> well, there are no onions to peel. <laughs> all you have to do is help set the table. Under their hostess's gay guidance, the seven guests began to circulate busily through the room. Laying the table, grouping the chairs, opening bottles, and preparing the material for the chafing dishes. Mrs. Kildare, in the kitchen, ransacked the icebox, and with her own hands shredded the chicken and measured the cream. Flanders, carry this in carefully. Cheever, stop watching your wife and put the salad bowl on the table. <laughs> Everything ready, Harris? All set. All right, uh, everyone sit down. I'll be right in. She went into her bedroom, took off her apron, and hung it in the closet. Then, going to her dressing table, she drew the hat pin around which were her rings from the pincushion and carelessly slipped them on her fingers. But all at once, she frowned and looked quickly at her hand. Only two rings were there. The third ring, the sapphire, was missing. Stupid. She said to herself, and returned to her dressing table. Immediately, she stopped. She remembered quite clearly putting the hat pin through the three rings. She made no attempt to search further, but remained without moving, her fingers slowly drumming on the table. Who had taken the ring? Each of her guests had had a dozen opportunities in the course of the time she'd been busy in the kitchen. She ran over their characters and their situations as she knew them. Strangely enough, at each, her mind stopped upon some reason that might explain a sudden temptation. To find out nothing this way, that's not the important thing to me just now. The important thing is to get the ring back. And slowly, deliberately, she began to walk back and forth, a clenched hand beating the deliberate, rhythmic measure of her journey. Five minutes later... As Harris installed the chef over the chafing dish, was giving directions, spoon in the air, Mrs. Kildare came into the room like a lengthening shadow. Her entrance had been made with scarcely a perceptible sound, and yet each guest was aware of it at the same moment, with a little nervous start. Heavens, heavens, dear lady, you come in on us like a Greek tragedy. What is it you have for us, a surprise? I have something to say to you. Mr. Enos Jackson. Yes, Miss Kilder? Kindly do as I ask you. Well, certainly. Go to the door. Go to the door? Please. Yes? Lock it. And bring me the key. Here you are. You've locked it? As you wish me to. Thank you. Now, the bedroom door. Would you do the same? Sure. Thank you, Mr. Jackson. Mr. Cheever. Yeah? Would you blow out all the candles except the candelabra on the table? Blow out all the candles? Except the candelabra. All right. Well, uh, for goodness sake, Mrs. Kildare, 
What is it? I am getting terribly worked up. I, my I'm nerves are all sorry, made up. Mrs. Jackson. That's the last candle. All right. Now listen. My sapphire ring has just been stolen. Oh, you don't mean it. The ring's been taken within the last 20 minutes. I'm not going to mince words. The ring has been taken, and the thief is among you. But Mrs. Kildare, is it possible? Yes, Mrs. Cheever. There's not the slightest doubt. Three of you were in the bedroom when I placed my rings on the pincushion. Quite true. I was in the room when she took them off. The sapphire ring was on top. Each of you has passed through there a dozen times since. My sapphire ring is gone, and one of you has taken it. Now, listen. I'm not going to miss words. I'm not going to stand on ceremony. But I'm going to have my ring back. Listen to me carefully. I'm going to have that ring back. And until I do, not a soul shall leave this room. I don't care who's taken it. All I want is my ring. Now, I'm going to make it possible for whoever took it to restore it without possibility of detection. The doors are locked and will stay locked. I'm going to blow out the remaining candles in the candelabra. And we're going to count 100 slowly. It'll be an absolute darkness. No one will know or see what's done. But if, at the end of that time, the ring is not here on the table, I shall telephone the police and have everyone in this room searched. Am I quite clear? Everyone take his place about the table and uh, remain standing, please. That's it. That'll do. Now, I'll blow out the candles and count 100. No more, no less. Remember, either I get that ring or everyone in this room will be searched. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. Twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four, <clears throat> twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven, twenty-eight, twenty-nine, thirty, thirty-one, thirty-two, thirty-three, thirty-four, thirty-five, thirty-six, thirty-seven, thirty-eight. 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, 49, 50, 51, 52, 53, 54, 55, 56, 57, 58, 59, 60, 61, 62, 63, 64, 65, 66, 67, 68, 69, 70, 
74, 75, 76, 77, 78, 79, 80, 81, 82, 83, 84, 85, 86, 87, 88, oh, really? 89, 90, 91, 92, 93, 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, 100. Well, it is there, Mr. Cheever, you may hand it to me. Well, now that that's over, we can have a very gay little supper. The light, someone. And there you are, gentlemen. Oh, I say, Peters, that's not all. Absolutely. The story ends there? Story ends there. But uh, who took the ring? <laughs> what? You mean, never found out? Never. No clue? None. I'm not sure I like the story. Uh, it's no story at all. Permit me, it is a story. And it is complete. In fact, I consider it unique because it has none of the banalities of a solution and leaves the problem even more confused than at the start. Well, I don't of see... Of course what... you don't see, my dear Enkin. You do not see that any solution would be commonplace... Whereas no solution leaves an extraordinary intellectual problem. Oh, how so? Well, in the first place, whether the situation actually happened or not, which is in itself a mere triviality, Peters has constructed it in a masterly way, the proof of which is that he has made me listen. Any of those present might have taken the ring. There are therefore seven solutions, all possible and all logical. But beyond this is left a great intellectual problem. Oh, how so? Was it a woman who lacked the necessary courage to continue? Or was it a man who repented his first impulse? Is a man or is a woman the greater natural criminal? Oh, that's simple, Quinny. A woman took it, of course. Well, on the contrary, it was a man, for the second action was more difficult than the first. A man, certainly. The restoration of the ring was a logical decision. You see? Personally, I incline to a woman for the reason that a weaker feminine nature is strangely susceptible to the domination of her own sex. There you are. We could meet and debate the subject year in and year out and never agree. Uh, I, I recognize most of the characters, Peters. Uh, Mrs. Kildare, of course, is all you say of her. An extraordinary woman. The story is quite characteristic of her. Flanders, I'm not sure of, but I think I know him. I'm positive I do. Did it really happen? Exactly as I told it. The only one I don't recognize is Harris, your humble servant. What? You, Peters? You were there? I was there. I was Harris. I beg your pardon, gentlemen. Oh, yes, what is it, John? Mr. Peters, sir, your train. You told me to remind you. Oh, thank you. Yes, I didn't know it was so late. Will you gentlemen pardon me? Huh? Well, of course. Nice sir. to meet you all. <clears throat> Night. Curious chap. Extraordinary. Well, now, I... I wonder. I wonder if we're wondering the same thing, gentlemen. Gentlemen.
And so, with the enigmatic smile of Mr. Peters, or Harris, ends 100 in the Dark, Owen Johnson's smooth story which gave us tonight's... Suspense. Suspense is produced by William Spear. Tonight's radio drama was written by Jack Anson Fink, directed by John Dietz, and scored by Bernard Herman. Eric Dressler was Mr. Peters... Alice Frost played Mrs. Kildare, and Ted Osborne, Quinny. Others in the cast were Helen Lewis, Joan Shea, Henriette Kay, Frank Reddick, Paul Luther, Stefan Schnabel, Ian Martin, and Barry Kroger. With this evening's performance, Columbia brings to a conclusion the present series of Suspense. If you've liked these broadcasts, CBS would be pleased to hear from you. Suspense has been a series presented for your relaxation and enjoyment by... The Columbia Broadcasting System. That was 100 in the Dark from Suspense here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. That was a request coming to us from one of our listeners, James. I will tell you, just to start things off, that at one point, uh, I don't remember which session this was, but I was listening to different old-time radio shows, trying to find one to bring to the podcast. It was my choice, and I listened to um, half of this one (laughs) (laughs) and went, nope. (laughs) Well, it's funny you should say that. This is on my list of episodes to bring to the podcast, which is part of the reason I chose it uh, when James recommended it. And I partly wanted to bring it to the podcast because I think it's an interesting discussion for the three of us because it talks about what people are looking for in a detective story. And the first time I heard it, I loved the disclaimer at the top, which felt like it was written specifically to preemptively answer the criticism they would later receive 80 years from now from <laughs> some guy named Eric. <laughs> when they're really like, tonight's story gathers in suspense very gently, Eric. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't have a spectacular finish, Eric. <laughs> but hang in there anyway. I found, while I was listening to it again, that it struck me that especially the first 15 minutes of filler, I mean, the first 15 minutes of the story, it sounded like listening to a podcast about people discussing how to write the perfect mystery or uh, crime or suspense story. It was like a room full of uh, playwrights, writers, or critics. So it struck me that it was the three of us with much better vocabulary. (laughs) Hey, our vocabulary, good. (laughs) me fail english that's impossible (laughs) my background with uh, old-time radio is a little different than the two of yours i actually came to all-time radio through existing podcasts that would just take a bunch of really random episodes smash them all together and just like press play and listen to random shuffle jukebox of stuff and i never really paid attention to what was what and this was one of the episodes that was in that pool of ones that I had heard before. So it automatically struck a little nostalgic. Oh, like, this is one of my episodes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Joshua, you are somewhat accurate 
in what you're assuming my reaction to this would be. You turned I, it uh, off halfway through. You confessed. <laughs> <laughs> it's too good. I can't keep going. That was it, Tim. It was too good. No, it was the first time. Now, this time I had to finish it. I suppose I could have just walked in here and said, so then what happened? But I've done it before. Uh, but being forced to listen to the whole thing, by the time I got to the end, I had some different opinions and thoughts uh, having given it a shot. I still have questions about what's why we're on this journey in this particular way. Are we supposed to... Here we go. Here no. We go. Are we supposed to think that the guy at the end was the guy, the butler, and stole the ring? That is a compelling interpretation. What are we supposed to think? Because they uh, all I went, wait a minute, is everybody thinking what I'm thinking? And then it ends. I think we're supposed to have exactly this discussion. Uh, that yeah. is the point at the top of this about detective stories that when robbed of their banal solutions, it leaves them open to this intellectually engaging discussion. Even having heard it before, at the end of this, I was like, did I like that? <laughs> and the more I thought about it, like, yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. I really like that. Um, that my in enjoyment and appreciation of it increased as I thought about it more than it was in the actual moment. You have to go back and think about this one, and a second listen certainly helps. And I think the disclaimer at the top helps to really let you know that they are committed to the quote-unquote gentle pace. And there are a couple great moments related to that. Set aside all the metatextual discussion of what makes a satisfying detective story or any kind of story, but just the willingness to stop and breathe in a radio production, beginning with right at the top when the drinks arrive and interrupt the discussion, <laughs> and they take the time to pass each drink out, to add soda and lime, to vocally respond to the strength of the drink, the, the <laughs> things like that. So you could keep track of which of these characters is which that has no impact on the story. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. It would also be compelling just to put a microphone in someone's house. <laughs> just listen to them go about their day. Sorry, that was really jerky of me. I didn't mean it quite that jerky. But gosh, it's slow. It is so slow. And here's what I loved about it. I loved the actual story of the woman in the ring and the, and the dinner party and the solution and, well, the non-solution. But I think we could have got there faster. But I think also that people like Joshua and perhaps Tim really enjoyed that 15-minute discussion of the old writer's club or wherever we were at the top very much. And I get all that. I just think you could have said that faster and had a little more of the story of the missing ring at the dinner party, maybe. But then again, there was much more to add to that story. <laughs> that story was pretty cut and dried. Hey, welcome. Hey, who stole my ring? Although I really loved about that story is the setup of the suspects even though we didn't get a solution. I really like that everybody in there has a huge uh, motivation to take that ring. And uh, I thought that was really cool, which makes me want to know who did it even more. And they really underscore their point that is set up in the earlier 10 minutes when they're discussing uh, the merits of stories in the club, that we are totally engrossed by the description of all these suspects and all this information, right. and none of it ends up really being important, yet it's still really enjoyable. So that's what I think is important about setting up this 
discussion in the beginning is that this then illustrates the points that each character is arguing in the club. Yeah. My pitch for what the point of the coin story is, this is the example of the criticism that the ring story wants to overcome. Right. That this is interesting story, it's back and forth, and then there's a solution, and then everyone is like, meh, it could have been better. If it had been like this, it'd been a better solution. Yeah, the one guy is totally like, oh, it should have been something more dangerous to a woman's reputation. <laughs> I was like, shut up, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> you know what killed me, though, was the coin story. All those guys went, mm, see, that's stupid. That's stupid. And I was going, oh, cool, he had another coin in his pocket. I get it. And I was like, I really like that story. In fact, I'm stealing that story. And I'm going to write that story on stage someday. And it's, again, it's this, you guys. I don't want this to get too personal because, you know, this isn't therapy or counseling for Eric. Oh, you once stole someone's expensive (laughs) ring. It's the idea of when I like something and then a bunch of people come in and go, no, that's stupid. And that's what I felt like listening to that coin thing. I hate when that happens when I really like the X-Men movie. (laughs) No, it's stupid. You know, like, oh. By coincidence, I have an X-Men movie in my pocket. (laughs) <laughs> the, another one but do you know what i'm saying so as i was listening to that story I said oh that's really cool and then all those guys jumped in and said yeah see that's stupid that's not how a good mystery or suspense works and i went it isn't <laughs> and, and it's my own uh, lack of confidence in your own opinion yes yeah it's my own shortcomings that makes me feel like the actual radio program poo-pooed me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't think they said it was stupid. I think what they were saying is that it's pat and it just works so neatly that it's disappointing. And I don't know that they were saying that specific story is disappointing so much as like what Tim's saying is it, it illustrates the fact when a clean, elegant solution, even if it works and even if it's cool like you thought it was, can be a little bit of a letdown. As opposed to what they offer as an alternative is something where they can speculate for hours while they continue to drink in this club. (laughs) Yeah, it does. It does strike that thing with me that I really dislike of not being given answers, even though the entire premise of this was a discussion about what if you're not given answers and I'm not going to give you an answer. I know we're all set up for it. But I still was the idiot at the end going, who did it? But ironically, <laughs> when you first listened to it, you refused to listen through to the end. You wouldn't yeah, let because, it give because you because an ending. Never, I never got into the ring story. I turned it off before the ring story. It was just, to me, it was, a, is this a half an hour of these guys doing a 1945 version of a podcast? Stop oh, saying is... how boring it is to listen to three men sit around <laughs> and talk about stories. You're really undermining us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I, sorry, I, you're right. Here's my sexy thesis. You're talking about oh. sexy thesis. The story of the ring is the crime. Yeah, yeah, that's the stunned silence I like to hear. <laughs> so just like the actual crime of like, there's people hanging out, they're talking about stuff. They think it's sort of engaging in something and someone is bored, so he's going to do something exciting. And this is working on the loose assumption that maybe the uh, person who told the story is also the criminal. So he stole the ring and he starts telling the story. But the question is, 
Did he steal it just to give it back, just to create this mystery? Did he steal it thinking, like, I need a ring. This would be awesome. And then the lights were out and they're counting to 100. And like, well, I'm going to get caught, so I'll put it back. But nothing actually happened because of the ring. I'm guessing, like, this lady invited all these people to the party again next week. It's interesting you bring that up. One of the thoughts in my head when it was over was, that's a hard party to get back into after that. <laughs> like, that's, that's a hard to pick up the where you left off. All right, we're back in it. Everybody have some cream chicken. And for me, it was a similar vibe to him. I'm going to tell the story, leave it open-ended, and I'm going to walk out that door and let you guys guess if I was the thief or not. I like the idea that this happened to this guy a while ago, mm -hmm. but he did it on purpose just to have this story to tell and was going <laughs> to give the ring back the entire time and then went, great, now I can watch people's reaction and now I have an interesting story to tell. I like that theory a lot. Did we ever find out who they are? This well, they're an artist and writers club mentioned specifically, okay. so they was are okay. a, a bunch of um, snooty writers. What was the Harpo Marx group that he belonged to? The Bletchley Circle? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't remember which one. He wasn't the Inklings. Uh, Dorothy the, Parker, the, um, Harpo Marx. Starts with an A. Oh, the Algonquin. Algonquin, yes. Yes, I'm yeah. sorry, Bletchley Circle, I forgot. That, yeah, I, I, totally I thought you were making a specific joke about the Bletchley Circle. They were... Uh, <laughs> code breakers. Code yes, breakers, right. yes. I meant to say Algonquin. <laughs> Harpo Marx. <laughs> Breaking codes with his horn. <laughs> You're not helping, Harpo. <laughs> it tells us nothing. <laughs> the Bletchley one, you were just talking about the code breakers, wasn't that the... The spy cook, oh, from PBS. Was, I'm making, what was her name? Uh, Julia Child? Yeah, Julia Child. She was a spy. She was a spy? <laughs> yeah. What? Totally. Yeah. I told her all my secrets. <laughs> <laughs> I also loved the counting, the 100 count. Um, because of the suspense and the little noises and that, before the ring drops, and then yeah. the ring drops, and you got to wait for, like, finish counting! Turn the lights back on! That's the triumph of this episode, is that count. Because when I first heard it, I went, well, they're going to obviously do a crossfade and cut to the end. It is incredibly stressful. Mm -hmm. The first time I listened to it, I was doing something else, and I was enjoying it, uh, but I just stopped and stood perfectly still and listened to this woman count to 100. We both had the same reaction, Joshua. When she started, I went, please tell me you're not going to actually count to 100. Not thinking that they would and thinking the same thing, they'll crossfade. And when it got to 15, I went, come on, that's 15. You could have done this at 9, crossfade <laughs> into 98. But then, as much as I thought I am going to be really mad to listen to someone count to 100, I was amazingly entranced by that entire count and cannot believe they got away with that. There are little things like hitting the chair. Sorry, that was me. And the coughing and the things that were happening. And they were timed really well because they gave big gaps where there was just counting yeah. to make you uncomfortable. And then those little bits of relief and then they kept going. That's a daring move to write that and do that. And Whoa. then when you hear the ring at 75, that's super cool. The whole episode is pretty risky and daring yeah. considering this is the first season of suspense they yeah. don't have a sponsor and they're <laughs> put out as a summer replacement just to see how it goes and someone was like i know how we'll end this 
<laughs> yeah, it, with a it came show very... that needs a disclaimer. It's so <laughs> slow. <laughs> That's how we'll blow the Campbell's, roof off this. Very Campbell's Playhouse. We're going to throw all sorts of stuff at you, all sorts of crazy stuff. The CBS Radio Workshop? Yes. Sorry, not Campbell's Playhouse. CBS Radio Workshop. Yeah, we're, they were experimenting with mm-hmm. all sorts of stuff. So it had that vibe. To, like That could have been one of their shows. This show could have been one of their shows. This production also features really good background murmuring and talking and little bits of dribble where you hear someone in the yes. background say something. It just sounds really full, and occasionally it's really funny. Um, there's the part right before the party starts where Miss Kildare declares, we may all be bankrupt, divorced, or dead by tomorrow, but tonight we'll be gay. And there's this sort of like murmuring approval, and then just one little voice goes, well, I'll try. Yes. It was perfect. Fantastic. It made me giggle. And then there's a weird, very dated bit at the end because this is a story from 1907 where all the debate at the Gentleman's Club, appropriate enough, is all very gender based about basically a woman would be more susceptible to be dominated by her own sex and a man would have the courage to change his mind. But in the context of the time period, that was a big part of mysteries where it's always like, would a woman have the strength to thrust this knife? And so I think while it was uh, kind of the gender stereotypes of the time, I also interpreted it as riffs on tropes of the detective genre at the time. Yeah. But it's weird that that's all they took from it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was the endless debate they were going to have is about <laughs> gender stereotypes. <laughs> And it's funny, too, because the exact thing that they were criticizing, like, the problem with mysteries is it's just a pat answer, is the immediate thing they want to do is figure out, well, what's the pat answer? Yeah. <laughs> like, we'll they just wanna... cut the suspects in half based on gender. And, and then they're like, uh, we want to find out who has the best pat answer, and we will fight about it until we're all drunk. Which is what this podcast is. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of pat answers, anybody got any pat answers they want to add to this discussion before we vote? I think I'm ready to vote. Well, let's do it. Uh, eeny, meeny, miny, Tim. Um, this, to me, is a classic, and that's a little bit of me personally. I, I recognize this is a little indulgent. This is a little uh, uh, experimental. But also, as someone who appreciates audacious storytelling, this is great. I think this is a classic. Wow, classic. Nice. Yeah. I'm going to agree with everything you said other than the word classic. I find it compelling and brave. Did I like it? No, but I completely understand what they're doing, and I love the risk of it, and I respect exactly what they're doing, and I know what this is, and it's just, oh, yeah, Joshua's going to love this. That's, you know, (laughs) it's great. But it's really well done for what it is also, and I love that they give us, you know, the, the heads up. Uh, and again, I will tell you that that count, 1 to 100, is one of my favorite moments of drama, period, let alone radio drama. I thought that was really fascinating. Super interesting to me. Like, wow, you got away with that really well. And that should not have happened. That is not a good thing to put in a show. That's a dumb idea, and you did it. Uh, I won't give it classic just because, you know, me, I want some car chase scenes and people jumping out of airplanes and tigers that speak. I don't know what I'm saying. But I, Frosted Flakes commercial. <laughs> it is really well done. It stands test time because it leads to discussion. Yeah, I find this one a little hard to reconcile with our, our cookie cutter 
boating categories to a certain extent. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely of historical interest uh, for reasons we already discussed as the finale of the debut season of suspense and very risky to do as the, your finale. It stands the test of time and it doesn't because it definitely has some dated stuff, particularly with the, the gentleman just discussing all the various uh, ways women would or would not be able to commit this crime. But at the same time, the metafictional elements and the ambiguous ending are very modern, are probably more accessible to a general audience today than they were in 1942. Classic? I don't know that it, it is that essential in the context of suspense. I'm kind of on the fence about classic, but for me on a personal level, I just loved it to death. As Eric anticipated, it just hits my sweet spot of something that really breaks the standard format, is really engaging, committed this is what we're doing, damn it, and we're going to do it really well. And if you don't like it, we won't be back for the next 19 years. <laughs> right. It will be a weird one-off season of this show called Suspense. And I just really admire that. And it also, uh, we didn't mention this, so I'll say it really quickly because we're running out of time, but it, it provides a nice bookend with The Lodger, which we discussed the mystery in the air last week and discussed the suspense pilot that just totally doesn't have an ending. And this is how you do an episode that doesn't have an ending. I mean, I think the entire piece is constructed to support the lack of clear ending and to still provide a sense of satisfaction in its absence. Um, so uh, it also gave a finger to the pilot, which I enjoyed. <laughs> <laughs> the difference is that this episode said, hey, this is planned. And the Lodger episode felt like oh my God, we forgot to write an ending and we're live. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody do something. Yeah, quick. Somebody get uh, Hitchcock out here. He's not here? Okay, where's Joseph Kearns? <laughs> he does yeah. a good Hitchcock. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> you, that was a great Julia Child. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> she was a spy. Uh, okay. <laughs> Tim, tell him stuff. Please go visit ghoulishdelights.com, home of this podcast. There's other episodes there. You can uh, vote in polls. Let us know what you think about these episodes. Comment. Send us messages if you have requests you want us to listen to. Uh, there's also links to our social media pages. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're, we're like, oh, we're not on TikTok, but still pretty good. <laughs> Please, if if we go on TikTok, just stop us. We need an intervention. Right. We are three middle-aged men. We should not be on TikTok. No. <laughs> you can also get swag at Threadless. <laughs> you can also go to patreon.com slash the morals and support this podcast financially uh, because we really do appreciate it. We've got uh, Zoom happy hours where we hang out with our patrons um, and talk. You guessed it, old time radio. We have monthly members only podcasts. We have tote bags. We are totally NPRing this stuff. So uh, please uh, <laughs> check out patreon.com slash the morals. And when we get off the air, I'll tell you about the shower curtain I bought. <laughs> it was, it's awesome. It truly is phenomenal. Get a shower curtain, everybody. Hey, the, uh, 
conglomeration <laughs> known as the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society has a sub-branch that does live theater. Uh, not only this podcast, but we do recreations and adaptations of old radio shows, plus a lot of our own original work, mostly original work, live on stage. Now, with the pandemic here in 2021, we, of course, have not been live for a while, but we are still at Park Square Theater in St. Paul, and you can see us online by buying a ticket by going to parksquaretheater.org. We do a show monthly, and we do two shows monthly. Uh, just look it up at mysteriousoldradiolisteningsociety.com, ghoulishdelights.com, or parksquaretheater.org to buy your tickets to see us perform our live radio dramas. Hey, what's coming up next? Uh, next is my pick, and um, I am celebrating what would be Orson Welles' 106th birthday with an episode I have yet to choose of The Lives of Harry Lime. Until then... Look out! 91, 92, 93, 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, 100. All right, we're back in it. Everybody have some cream chicken.